Business Executives for National Security welcomes you to Building the Base. Here, thought leaders and practitioners discuss how we can ensure our shared security and prosperity through shaping the future of the national security industrial base. Your hosts are Silicon Valley defense expert Lauren Bedula, along with Ben's distinguished fellow and former head of acquisition for the Navy, Marines, and Special Operators, Hondo Gertz. Welcome back to Building the Base. Lauren Badula here with my co-host, Hondo Gertz, and we are so excited and honored to have Secretary Leon Panetta with us today. Secretary Panetta was the 23rd United States Secretary of Defense. He was the CIA Director, White House Chief of Staff, served as the Director of the Office of Management and Budget, and was a U.S. Representative for eight terms, I believe. So an incredible career of public service. I think there are probably no no others who have this long list of, of, of a career. So thank you, sir, so much for joining us today. And I also like to point out that you served in the U.S. Army as well, which is really incredible. And born in Monterey, California, and you were the son of Italian immigrants. So we're, right. we're excited to get into your story. Thanks so much for joining yeah. us. My pleasure. Well, Secretary, in your book, Worthy Fights, you talk about how the challenges of protecting this nation, safeguarding its economy, providing opportunity to its citizens and preserving its treasures have really been the mainstays of your life. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about your story and what drove you to public service? Well, first of all, it's great to be with you and to have this chance to, uh, to talk about uh, these issues and uh, the things that are, are frankly important to our country and to our future. Uh, I, uh, you know, I've, I've often said, uh, as the son of Italian immigrants, uh, I think I've had a chance to live the American dream. Uh, I used to ask my my father, uh, why did he come all of that distance uh, with my mother to to a strange land? I mean, it, it, they came from a poor area in Italy, Calabria, uh, but they had the comfort of family and friends. And so I, I, I say, what what made you pick up and come all of that distance? to a new country, and I never forgot his answer, which was uh, that he said, your mother and I believe that we could give our children a better life in this country, which is the American dream, uh, and it's the dream that we want for our children, hopefully for their children, to have a better life. And so I, I've often said, as the son of Italian immigrants, uh, I've kind of lived uh, the American dream. Uh, and it was... Uh, in large measure, you know, my, my parents always felt that this country had given them the opportunity to be able to, you know, to work hard, but to also succeed uh, and to help educate my brother and I, who were the first to go to college. But my, my parents would often say that it was important to give back to the country because what the country gave them. Uh, and that was an important incentive. Uh, to get involved. Uh, I, sp I spent two years in the Army, uh, and active duty, get, this is during the draft period, where I was working with people from across the country, from different parts of the country, who were coming together to work on a mission, to achieve a mission. And, you know, what what that meant for me was that was to see that you could bring together uh, Americans from different parts of the country to come together on a common mission and work together 
uh, you know, giving back to the country. And then lastly, there was a young president who said, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Uh, and all of, all of those experiences, I think, help uh, give me the incentive to be able to get into public service and really spend almost all of my life uh, in one way or another giving back to the country. Secretary Panetta, it's, it's good to be with you again. I, I worked for you uh, kind of almost a decade ago uh, in one of your uh, one of your jobs, and and in your in your many uh, different important positions, you've seen kind of the industrial base and what's the power when we can link kind of national security and national prosperity together. Uh, and I think there's this growing sense we're doing a lot of work looking at you know how does the industrial base have to shift? What do we need to do? as a country to bring back maybe some of the capability we have. What, what's your view on where you think we need as a country to bring back capability to produce things and have the industrial base to be both strong and prosperous in the future? Well, I, I've always felt that uh, this, this country uh, cannot be a world leader. And I, and I believe we have to be a world leader. Because if, if the United States doesn't provide that leadership, very frankly, nobody else will. Uh, and because of our responsibility uh, as a world leader, I think it's very important that the United States have not only a, the strongest military on the face of the earth, um, but that we also build strong diplomacy in the world as well. And I, I really believe that we cannot be the strongest military power on the face of the earth without having uh, an industrial base in this country that supports what we're doing. Uh, there's no way that we can, we can do what we have to do, whether it's with regards to weapons or technology or the kind of systems that we absolutely have to have when we're trying to protect our national security. There's no way we can do this without having uh, an industrial capability within our own country that gives us what we need in order to be able to address these issues. Uh, we, we can't, I mean, you know, and, it, and look, it, you know, this is a globalized world. I realize that. Uh, and there are going to be areas that, you know, we'll get help from in a globalized world. But when it comes to a crisis in the future, we, we may not be able to depend on those kinds of resources. And for that reason, it's very important that we have that base in this country. I mean, we learned that in World War II. We've learned that in every crisis we've been a part of, that if we don't have that industrial base, we simply are not going to be able to mobilize and prepare ourselves for whatever enemy we're going to have to confront. So I, I think that is part and parcel of the strength that this country has when it comes to our national security. Mm-hmm. And, and core to the Ben's mission, and I was doing the math, it was 10 years ago last month that you received the Eisenhower Award from Business Executives for National Security, and you gave a speech that really got a lot of attention. You talked about the possibility of a cyber Pearl Harbor. And here we are 10 years later, and 
with the most notable national security expert here on our show. Can you tell our listeners your take on the challenges the world faces today? I, I, I said it then, and I, and I say it today again, uh, that uh, cyber is the battlefield of the present and the future. Uh, and we, we haven't, frankly, paid a lot of attention to what's happening on that front. Um, and part of it is, I, I think, uh, we, we have a tendency to take cyber for granted. Um, we all have iPhones. We all have our computers. We all kind of exist with it. But we don't, we don't really focus on it as something that could be a potential threat uh, to our way of life. And it can be. Um, what I came to recognize is that you can actually use a sophisticated virus and deploy it uh, from a computer any place in the world. Uh, and you can use that virus to basically paralyze another country. Uh, I saw it firsthand as director of the CIA uh, because Iran deployed a sophisticated virus called the Shamoon virus against Aramco oil in Saudi Arabia. Uh, and using that virus, they literally destroyed 30,000 computers. They shut down Aramco oil. You take that same kind of virus and deploy it uh, against our our systems in this country, our infrastructure, uh, our security systems, our financial systems, our electric grid, our chemical systems, our water systems, our transportation systems. And you could literally paralyze this country and create that Pearl Harbor that I talked about. Uh, we've seen the reality of that. We, we saw now, you know, hacking that actually went after our infrastructure in this country, shut down oil supplies to the East Coast. So we've seen it happen. Uh, but what I worry about is whether or not we really are fully aware of the threat that this constitutes and whether we're taking steps not only to defend ourselves from that kind of cyber attack, but also to have the offensive capability to strike back when that happens. I mean, you know, we, we were the victims of a very bold cyber attack by Russia going after our election systems. And, and it's happening today as we speak. Uh, and Russia never paid a price for that. I think it emboldened Putin to do some of the things he did. So it really is important that not only do we develop the defense that we need to protect against it, but that we be willing to strike back so that others know that uh, we can make them suffer the same way we can. Beyond cyber, just to pull the thread a little more, what's keeping you up at night these days? <laughs> Well, you know, I, I think we live at a time when we really are facing a number of what I call dangerous flashpoints. Uh, you know, as, as a kid, I came up in, in World War II as a, as a young kid uh, and kind of understood what it meant to kind of fight, go to war with, uh, with the enemies that we had then. And then we confronted the Soviet Union, obviously, in the Cold War. So I've seen this country have to take on, you know, various adversaries. But we're living at a time when 
there are a lot of dangerous flashpoints. Almost any place you look in the world. Uh, obviously, we're facing the threat from Russia uh, and Putin, uh, and that's playing out now in Ukraine, where you know the United States and our NATO allies, thank God, have come together in a unified way to be able to support Ukraine and their courageous fighters to do everything they can to stop a Russian invasion. I mean, I imagine, you know, World War II, uh, I remember what a, one tyrant did uh, in taking advantage of that. And now here we are in the 21st century and another tyrant uh, has basically invaded a sovereign democracy uh, and said that you don't have a right to be able to be a democracy. And that's incredible. So that certainly is a huge danger point. And we're, we are, in effect, deciding in the Ukraine what happens with democracy in the 21st century. It is a very pivotal war that we're fighting. Add to that China. I mean, we've just had President Xi basically define what total autocracy is all about. Uh no freedoms, no rights, no ability to influence government, just nothing but him as emperor and the Communist Party deciding what that country will do. I talk about autocracy. And the threat from China is real as well, um, and particularly with regards to Taiwan. So that's another area that I think is, uh, is, is a significant challenge for us. Uh, we're confronting... North Korea, I mean, even as we speak, North Korea is sending missiles into the air almost every day. Uh, Kim Jong-un is interested in kind of getting the attention of the world by being a bully, and that's what he's doing. Uh, but that's a threat. It's a threat to the Pacific region. It's a threat to the United States of America. Uh, Iran is a destabilized uh, and a destabilizing country in the Middle East. Uh, and is one of those countries that also is close to developing a nuclear weapon. Um, and so that remains another threat that we have to confront. Add to that terrorism, which is still a threat. Uh, you know, it's not over. 9-11 is not over. Uh, there are terrorist groups uh, across the world, particularly now with Afghanistan being under the Taliban's rule. Uh, they're providing a safe haven for terrorism again. Uh, and then you have various uh, elements of terrorism located in North Africa and in the Middle East and elsewhere uh, that have one goal, which is to attack the United States and attack the West. Um, and then you have this uh, cyber world that I just talked about. Uh, so you add all of that up, and we are confronting a huge number of danger threats. I mean, in the Middle East with failed states, those states are becoming breeding grounds for terrorism for the future. So no matter where you look, uh, we are confronting different crises, different autocrats, different tyrants, different threats, and it puts an even greater responsibility on the United States to develop our capabilities so that we can respond to those kinds of threats. It's, uh, it, it is certainly... Uh complicated and uh and challenging world out there uh, another flat i'm gonna i'm gonna circle back a little bit to what i think one of your most interesting jobs must have been and that was director of omb uh 
And and while being SecDef and director of CIA are, uh, are are great titles, being the director of OMB is a powerful position. And at, at that time, you really pushed hard for this balanced budget and trying to get a little hold of the deficit. As what's your view of you know another flashpoint to our economy and another interest raise going into maybe an economic cycle? What's your view on kind of the, how economics are going to influence how we deal with all the threats and maybe how we reshape uh, our industrial base going going forward? Well, obviously, it's critical. Uh, our, it's critical to our ability uh, not only to have a strong national defense, but to have a strong industrial base, that we have a strong economy in this country. Well, we can't survive as a democracy without having a strong economy. So that plays a, a huge role. And uh, my concern is that when we face challenges in our economy, uh, it isn't enough just to turn to the Federal Reserve and say it's your job to try to take care of this. Uh, what we need is a balanced approach to dealing with our economy, which means not only do we have a Federal Reserve policy, but we need to have a fiscal policy that also discipline, that disciplines uh, our spending and our approach to the budget. Uh, and when I was uh, OMB director, when I before that I was chairman of the House Budget Committee, uh, we were working on efforts to try to reduce the deficit and ultimately move towards a balanced budget. And because there were leaders on both sides, Republicans and Democrats, who were willing to confront that issue and put everything on the table, uh, we were able to pass uh, very significant budget deals, two really, one under Bush, President Bush, and one under President Clinton, that literally put it, put us on a track towards a balanced budget. And I, I had thought, as OMB director at the time, I thought, once we get a balanced budget, there's no way we're going to go back to deficit spending. And I was a chump for thinking that, because it, it only took a few years, and we were back in deficits. And now we're talking about a country that has a $31 trillion debt, uh, the largest debt in our history. Uh, and what really concerns me is that the budget process is in many ways broken. Uh, it's broken on Capitol Hill. Uh, neither the Republicans or Democrats really want to make serious decisions about what we do with regards to the budget, so they ignore it. Uh, and we wind up doing CRs and continuing resolutions and uh, not really making decisions about where we're going. Uh, and I think that's hurt our economy. I really do. I mean, I, I think the fact that we were able to balance the budget sent a really important signal to our economy that we were willing to exercise fiscal discipline, and it created a booming economy in this country. And I think the fact that we, that we are in this huge debt, especially now with growing interest rates and the fact that it's going to consume huge amounts of resources for the future, uh, I think in some ways it's crippling our ability to have that strong economy and a bit of a wake-up call, too. I know the private sector, we've seen a shift in terms of trust in a post-Snowden world, maybe hesitancy to work with the national security community. But we're, we're seeing that that uh, gap come together now, which is encouraging and something Ben's cares quite a bit about. 
Um, well, Se- Secretary, you're known for working across the aisle and getting things done, being really results oriented. Do you have any tips on how to work together? And um, one of the things you said at the top, I really liked coming together to achieve a mission. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's critical to our democracy. It really is. Uh, you know, our, our forefathers understood that ultimately, if our democracy was going to work, that uh, it would really require people of different viewpoints to be able to be willing to express themselves, their thoughts, and what what this country needed, but then to come together and to find consensus, to find compromise, in order to be able to resolve issues. That goes to the heart of what uh, a democracy needs to be all about. Uh, I've often said that in my over 50 years of public life, I've seen Washington at its best and Washington at its worst. Uh, the good news is I've seen Washington work. Uh, I saw Democrats and Republicans. I mean, I first went to Washington after the Army in 1966 and was a legislative assistant on the Senate side. And there were Democratic leaders and Republican leaders who were willing to work together on major issues. Did they have their political differences? Of course. But when it came to big issues, they worked together. Uh, when I got elected to Congress, Tip O'Neill was the Speaker of the House. A Democrats, Democrat from Boston, but he had a great relationship with Bob Michael, who was the minority leader. They had their political differences, but when it came to big issues, they worked together. During the Reagan administration, it was a Democratic Congress, but on a bipartisan basis, we were able to pass immigration reform, comprehensive immigration reform, something they can't do today. We passed Social Security reform, something that nobody wants to touch today. We passed tax reform, comprehensive tax reform. Again, another tough issue. We passed budgets. We were willing to work together in order to do what was right for the country. Today, because of the partisanship, the divisions, the polarization, there's an inability of both sides to be willing to listen to one another, to work together, to respect each other's views, and to try to find consensus. Somehow, we have got to get back to that or our country, our democracy is going to suffer as a consequence. One, one of the other principles besides working together that, that you've been outspoken about is public service. And you've cited that as a principle to a democracy is people serving, whether you and I serve in uniform and then serve in government, but there's lots of ways to serve. Which, can you tell our listeners kind of your views on why you think public service in whatever form it takes is so important, one, for the country and then for the individual uh, who's providing that service somewhere in their, uh, in their career? Yeah, I, I'm, I, I'm a believer in uh, giving back to the country. Uh, and uh, my wife and I established an institute for public policy, uh, the Panetta Institute. That it, it, Our mission is to try to inspire young people to lives of public service. Why? Because, you know, I mean, both my wife and I, because of our parents, because of kind of the, the values of the country at the time, felt it was important that we had to give back to the country. We had a duty to do that. Uh, when I went back uh, after one of my Washington experiences, I think it was being chief of staff, I went back and started working with students. What I found was that there wasn't this interest in getting involved with the country. Uh, and even today, 
at the Panetti Institute, you know, when I sit down with students that are selected from different campuses to come there, uh, I'm astounded that they don't have the education in how our democracy functions, our history, uh, the kind of basics of that you need to know. I mean, I, you, you know, I, I often hear him talk about here in Washington about regular order on Capitol Hill, which I, I remember what regular order was all about. I don't think there are members of Congress that know what the hell regular order is anymore. And so uh, the ability to try to make young people understand that they have a responsibility in our democratic system to be part of that process, to give something back, uh, is critical. And that's why I really believe that we've got to establish a national service system in this country that gives young people uh, the responsibility to serve this country for two years in some, some way, whether it's education, conservation, health care, education. I don't, I don't give a damn what area it's in, including the military. But serve this country in some way uh, and then provide, you know, a so-called GI Bill of, uh, you know, benefits that uh, can return that. But what they need to understand is, is the, the ability to come together, to work on a common mission, to learn the discipline of what that's about, to accomplish that mission. Uh, that's something that's paid off for a country in, in many ways from past service, particularly for those in the military. Uh, I think we've got to extend that now. And I, I think young people are kind of lost right now, if you want to know the truth. I, coming out of the COVID period, uh, I think they're struggling to try to figure out what, what they should do. We took a poll, the Panetta Institute took a poll, and for the first time this year, a majority of students said they did not think they would have a better life than their parents. And that's kind of a frightening figure. Uh, and so I really think we need to pay attention to how do we get young people, this new generation of leaders that we're going to need in this country to be able to take over our democracy. That's something everybody ought to be concerned about. Yeah, I think um, I feel the same thing. And, and again, you and I were probably lucky. We probably didn't understand all the benefits of service in the military for you know everybody that comes in for different reasons. Are you seeing, um, I am starting to sense, maybe it's with the Ukraine conflict and some of these other things which are more tangible views of the threat, that there is now a, a more willingness or interest in trying to figure out how to serve. Um, I think we need some mechanism to facilitate that and accelerate it as opposed to kind of uh, interesting just kind of, you know, how it might happen. Is the tech companies tend to are also now, you know, more of the Silicon Valley kind of out in your neighborhood are getting more interested in national defense. Do you think that's also an opportunity uh, to help make better connections and, and show how you can actually work in interesting jobs and still serve your country at the same time? You know, there, there's nothing like a, a good crisis to capture the attention of people. Uh, it's, it's, in some ways, that's unfortunate because we ought to be smart enough to be able to do it without the necessity of a crisis. But a crisis focuses the mind. Uh, and uh, we, that certainly was true in 9-11, coming out of 9-11 and having to take on 
uh, terrorism and those who attacked our country. Uh, we had a lot of people who volunteered, became part of the military, uh, served in the military, and uh, a lot who put their lives on the line uh, in order to protect our country. Uh, and I think with Ukraine, we see the larger message that's coming out of autocracy versus democracy uh, and the need for democracies to stand up uh, and be able to fight back against the Putins of the world. Uh, and that is critically important to the inspiration that we need uh, to understand that not only do we have to serve this country, but it's both public and private sector that have a responsibility to face that kind of crisis. If we work together, if we, if we pull together, um, I think we can be the arsenal for democracy that we were in World War II. Uh, we can be that arsenal of democracy for the future. Well, sir, on that note, because it's such an important message we're trying to send, thank you so much for telling your incredible story today and really emphasizing the importance of public service and strong public-private partnerships. So thank you so much. Thank you very much. It's great to be with you. You've been listening to Building the Base, a podcast from the Business Executives for National Security. Join hundreds of senior leaders and executives dedicated to the mission of keeping our nation safe. Check out our projects we're currently working with, important upcoming events, and the many ways you can get involved at www.bens.org.